Today's presentation by Dr. Christine Peterson, who will speak to us on why viral variants form and what it means for global trends for SARS-CoV-2 now and moving forward with vaccination. I am Katherine Whitnabin, Executive Director of the Iowa City Formulations Council and host for today's program. As always, we thank our members, supporters, and interns for making these forms possible. I want to acknowledge our organizational supporters, University of Iowa's international programs, University of Iowa's Honors Program, University of Iowa Public Policy Center, the Stanley UI Foundation Support Organization for their financial support. I also thank City Channel 4 and the UI Digital Libraries for helping us to continue to make our programs available to online audiences. We also want to mention our thanks to the Iowa Council, Iowa Arts Council, for their financial support to the Iowa Arts and Cultural Recovery Program. As we get started, I would like to cover some Zoom etiquette. Please keep your audio and video turned off for the duration of the presentation so you do not interrupt Dr. Peterson. Following Dr. Peterson's presentation, we will have a brief question and answer period. You will be able to submit your questions via the chat function. At that time, we invite you to turn on your video, but to keep your audio muted to avoid any background noise. Due to Dr. Peterson's very busy schedule, we also plan to finish today by 12.55 p.m. It is my great pleasure now to introduce Dr. Christine Peterson. Dr. Peterson is an expert on vaccines, epidemiology, and the pandemic. She is the director of the Center for Emerging Infectious Diseases and professor in the Department of Epidemiology at the University of Iowa College of Public Health. Her scholarly work is focused on the recognition and prevention of zoonotic diseases, primarily the epidemiology and immunobiology of vector-borne and parasitic diseases and now SARS coronavirus too. It would take too long actually this entire program to list all of her accomplishments and achievements and contributions. So I refer you to her biography on our website or on the College of Public Health website. Today, Dr. Peterson is going to speak about the significance of current and future global trends of SARS-CoV-2 and how they relate to vaccinations. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Christine Peterson. Thank you so much for that introduction, Catherine. And it's a real pleasure to be with you all. Um, and I am sorry that I have to cut the Q&A a little short. So if people do have questions that I don't get to, feel free to email to them to me. Um, I may not get to them today, but I promise I will uh, email you back with responses. So with that, um, it's my pleasure to talk to you about what is happening with these variants um, how much is normal, uh, what is abnormal, and how do we think about these variants in the context of vaccination? So the example that I'm gonna use to set this all up is influenza, um, a virus that we've had centuries to learn about, um, and a virus that like um, SARS coronavirus 2 does move between other hosts, i.e. is zoonotic. Um, and specifically what we found with flu virus is that um, it starts in wild birds, particularly diving and dabbling ducks, um, often then can move in domestic poultry and then get shared with people. Um, there are special roles of hogs in this. Um, and for a while, pigs were thought to potentially be a super spreader host. 
Um, but it's then been shown that that's not necessary. And actually we probably acquire as many viruses in that initial introduction right from poultry as we do from hogs. So to help you understand um, what happens with influenza and then maybe to set up what we think is gonna start happening with the novel coronavirus or, or SARS coronavirus too, um, you need to understand that there's two types of influenza variants that kind of happen over time. The first happens through a prospect called genetic drift. And this is the normal variant. This is um, RNA viruses when they copy themselves make mistakes. And just that little bit of shifting uh, in the outside proteins of these viruses leads to changes in them that we have to address. And that's why we need new flu viruses and flu vaccines every year. And then every so often there's what's called genetic shift. And that's when we have viruses from different hosts recombining to make a really different virus. And that's usually what then leads to a pandemic flu. For instance, what's shown here is um, we had an introduction from our waterfowl in 1918 to cause the Spanish flu. And then about 50 years later, um, a different flu virus um, with different spike protein equivalents known as hemagglutinin and neuraminidase on the surface um, made its way into the population and led to a recombinant of these two. But it's big to uh, understand that we've got, you know, kind of these subtle changes that happen all the time, and that's what we're seeing with COVID-19. And then we have these bigger changes that really cause um, pandemics because we have a, a population that's susceptible to it. So um, I was already talking a little bit about these outer surface proteins, but specifically, um, much like the pictures you guys have seen probably a lot of times now of the coronavirus, um, the outer surface of flu viruses also has these projections. Um, the yellow one is hemagglutinin, and that's where we get the H numbers from. And then the N one uh, here, not NP, but NA down here, uh, kind of shown in that light creamy color, that's neuraminidase. Um, and the hemagglutinin is how the virus sticks to cells. So that is a lot like the spike protein that we see. And then the um, neuraminidase helps cleave off from cells. But that's where the H's and A's come, or N's come from when we talk about flu. And the most dominant uh, source of antibodies then, much like it is to the spike protein for coronaviruses, is to the H for the HA. And that's what this little uh, antibody is showing here to you. So just like the setting of coronaviruses, uh, flu is an RNA virus and it replicates inside our, our cells. So this blue circle here is a cell um, and this is the virus entering the cell. It then has its genome exported out into the cell's nucleus and that's how it makes more virus. So viruses are kind of in a unique um, part of the world of life. Um, they can't live on their own. They have to infect other cells to be able to copy and make more virus. So unlike a bacteria or a parasite or all those other bugs that we get infected by, um, a virus has to get into a cell in order to replicate and create new ones. So the virus itself has its own um, proteins 
that help it make more virus. And that's what's kind of down here in these little um, orange and green and yellow blocks. And that's where variants come from because um, the RNA polymerase that is made in flu um, has a lot more mistakes than the polymerases that our cells use to make new cells. So in all of those mistakes, sometimes they're mistakes that make the virus actually do better, but not always. So how do they get selected? So this, this now kind of orangish beige thing, this is an infected cell. And within this infected cell, we have a bunch of variants. Some of them are like this blue one here that's unfit and it's not gonna necessarily get passed on because it's not gonna compete well. But some like this green one are more fit. So those are like the um, mutations that we're seeing in the spike protein that then allow the viruses to get into cells better. Um, and that then leads to more virus being transmitted. So that virus starts out competing its, its brothers and sisters. Um, and what then happens as these bud out from the cell, um, because it's in the respiratory tract, our first line of defense is actually the mucus, um, which is of course no fun when you're sick and you're coughing it up, um, but it does help trap those viruses and prevents it from being spread when you cough or sneeze. Um, and then we have immune responses like antibodies that will also get rid of virus in a process that's um, called neutralization. And then, you know, if it doesn't get wiped out by our mucus or by our immune system, it can infect additional cells and that's where the selection process happens within our body. So a minority of viruses infect additional cells. That's all well and good, but then how does it actually transmit out from us? So when we cough or sneeze or sometimes just breathe, um, viral particles will leave our body. Um, and you know, here's one green one that's more fit. And a minority then will reach another host, specifically a person. And on a population level, you're gonna have only so many viruses that are able to get into new hosts and reach another population. So that's why we care about these um, mutations and variants because a lot of the time it isn't anything that helps the virus, but occasionally it is. And um, the more viruses have a chance to spread to new hosts and replicate and make more viruses, just out of math and probability, you're having a higher chance of new viruses forming that um, are variants that compete better. So that's why all the public health experts, as we find these new variants that do have increased ability to transmit, you know, we're doubling down on the messages of wearing masks and social distancing um, because we just want to try to have the odds on our side um, and try to decrease the ability for these viruses to form mutations that are fit or better. And as we know with influenza a hundred years ago, um, you know, these mutations do happen. It does spread through the population. Um, and at that time they didn't have the ability to get a vaccine astonishingly in a year or two. So they had several years that had very high morbidity and mortality. Um, and these pandemics do happen uh, you know, every 40 or 50 years. So here's just a timeline of, um, you know, starting from 1918, then we had that Hong Kong one that I showed you, the different um, H's and N's combining. 
Um, and then we have additional viruses. So we, in 1968, we had an H3N8 join us. Um, and what's thought to happen just because of the way that waterfowl move is often they do start in kind of Southeast Asia. Then because of seasonality, they move to South America. Um, they can move directly to um, North America. And that's how it spreads throughout the planet, um, often in these migratory patterns of birds, but also these days in travel of people. So that's why we're having these travel restrictions um, because we know it would be better for all of us if we can try to not share all of our variants across the planet. Um, but you know, understanding that we are humans and we have work we need to do and uh, sometimes the spread does happen. So it's these mutations and reassortments uh, that have caused previous flu pandemics, as I already said. Um, so this just shows in these three primary colors of, you know, starting with the Spanish flu, adding in the uh, H2N2 1957 Asian flu um, in 1968, we got what's called the Hong Kong flu. Um, and then of course, in 2009, we had what um, some people referred to as swine flu, um, but we just tried to call it the new reassortment to not blame any specific species. And what we see, not surprisingly, is that it does go from the northern hemisphere. So this is literally listed by um, long, no, latitude <laughs> um, down to the equator, uh, which is shown here, and then into um, the southern hemisphere. So you can see in this heat map pattern, and I'm sorry to any of you who are red-green colorblind because the red might be harder to see, but this is red up here. Um, this is obviously blue. And we see the seasonality of flu coming up in November, usually the hottest two months are December and January, um, and then clearing uh, as we get into March and April. But that's when we do start seeing it pick up in the fall of the summer, summer hemisphere. Um, into June and July are the big months for places like Vietnam, Cambodia, uh, Singapore, and then down here in Paraguay and Australia. Um, and that's what we watch happen. And that's how we try to get some idea of what might come back to the Northern Hemisphere every year. So there's a meeting held every March um, to see what's kind of lasting in the Northern Hemisphere, making the shift to the Southern Hemisphere. And that's how the decision is made as to what's in the flu vaccine every year. So with that, um, if we just focus in on February and March here, um, amazingly in this year, what we did with um, non therapeutic methods of public health intervention, so masking and social distancing, led to amazingly low levels of influenza spread throughout the globe. So the scale here goes from very light white down to a very kind of dark yellowy green. Um, and everything here is light white or cream. Um, so we really had next to no flu transmission happening um, across the Northern hemisphere through this flu season because of everything that we were doing to try to prevent the coronavirus from spreading. Um, yes, there was a handful, um, and this is showing the different subtypes. Um, subtype A is um, those H and Ns that I was talking to before, whereas subtype B is a different sort of virus. Um, 
there are sometimes beyond that. If somebody really wants to talk more about crazy flu that's found in those dabbling ducks, I'm happy to do that. But uh, these are the types that were found. And, we, you know, choices were made on what flu vaccine we're going to be able to get next fall, um, maybe with our new coronavirus vaccine. Um, but we didn't see a ton of flu in this year. And this just shows this graphically through the 52 years of um, the, I guess, weeks of the year. Um, so this was the end of the flu season last year as the coronavirus did start becoming a pandemic. Um, so you see the sharp drop off as we were mitigating it with um, state home orders and ban of travel and mask wearing. And then here is what happened in 2020, 2021 flu season. And, you know, this is where we were last year and we are barely, you know, at a couple hundred cases. Um, so, you know, just speaking to the phenomenal ability of those public health measures to prevent transmission of viruses like flu. Um, so, you know, back to what's happening here. Um, we know that in theory, we do have these viruses mutating and spreading. Um, and sometimes there are events called super spreader events. And this is um, the first SARS coronavirus outbreak. Um, there was an episode in a hotel in Hong Kong um, shown here. And one poor gentleman who was attending a conference got very sick with the first SARS coronavirus um, and vomited in the hallway. And um, the airflow and then, you know, because of the gastrointestinal effects of this, um, made it so that there were aerosolized particles in the hallway and in the um, different people you'll see and then in these different rooms that are shown in kind of the tan color you can see actual cases with no further transmission shown in tan and cases um, other way around with further transmission and without in gray so you know just in this one hallway we had about a dozen people who were infected. And of those dozen people, then this happened. So this was that original gentleman who got sick in the hallway. These are all the people that he infected. And then those people um, who they went on to infect and lead to illness. Um, so this is a super spreader event. And this is what we're you know now using almost as a joke about what could be a super spreader event. Um, but as we know, you know, the individuals who allow this to happen have to be shedding a whole bunch of virus. And then that selection process um, of what can happen in terms of variants occurs. Um, for instance, it was shown in a very nice cell article that came out last, last fall that an immunocompromised person who got um, SARS coronavirus 2 was able to lead to a new variant, um, and that did spread throughout the Connecticut area. So again, um, we really are worried about, you know, who are these people and making sure that they're protected by vaccination. And then this is just a little reminder that, um, you know, there are other creatures that are spreading this and um, there has been discussion of the markets or live markets where um, live animals are stacked one on top of each other uh, where they are urinating and defecating on each other, certainly able to spread disease that way. Um, and then they're butchered there as well. 
And that exposure to blood and other particulate matter during that process also makes it rather risky. Um, and thinking about how we can maybe encourage um, safer hygienic practices in these sorts of settings so that there's not as likely to have that co-mixing of different species that can lead to those dramatic shifts um, and real pandemics. So viruses tend to be the um, most favored um, emerging infectious diseases because they often are able to, as you heard, have this rapid uh, mutation, um, the selection of particularly fit viruses as variants, and then their ability to go into multiple different hosts. Um, we show the waterfowl for the flu uh, and poultry, but it turns out that bats are often ones that are discussed and bats are what we're really thinking might have been the original source of this SARS coronavirus. So um, when we then flip it to SARS coronavirus, you know, of course, these viruses have the same genetic bases that um, all life does, except because it's RNA, instead of having a T, it has a U for uracil. So that's what's shown here. Um, and when we're talking about variants now, we talk about three different classifications, variants of interest, um, where we've seen that receptor, that spike, have different binding to the receptor on the human health cell, um, reduced ability of antibodies to take away that virus, and then maybe reduced um, efficiency of treatments or a potential increase of transmission. And this is what we're talking about, for instance, with um, not the P1 virus, but the P2 virus coming out of Brazil. Variants of concern is where we have known increases of transmissibility or increased severity of disease. Um, and that's what we have with B117 that's very frequently discussed now, the South African variant, which is B1351, P1, the Japanese Brazilian variant. Um, and this is probably where the B1617, um, the mutation that's coming out of India will be placed as well. And then we haven't had any variants of high consequence um, yet, but these would have clear evidence that prevention measures, particularly vaccines, are not as effective. So thankfully, all of the variants so far do seem to still have um, vaccines that are efficacious against it and treatments that work. Um, and we all as public health officials are really hoping we can stay in this state. So how do we figure out what's happening with variants? Well, we sequence a lot, and that allows us to take a virus and to get the data and to know what the genomes are, to know what the differences are that are happening, particularly, like I said, in the spike proteins or outer surface proteins. Um, but it also allows us to look at other changes throughout the virus. So here are the questions that we're talking about with these variants. The first is really transmissibility, and this is discussed as R0 um, or R0 or the basic reproductive number. And um, amazingly, this is something that I've taught in my classes, but it wasn't something that we heard on national public radio, for instance, but in this last year we have. Um, and that whole concept is given one infectious person, how many additional infectious um, events will occur? So how many new infections do you get from a single infection? Um, and as you might imagine, in the, the situation of a super spreader, um, you get many, many more than what's on average of one or two. 
um, and your R naught needs to be above one for the virus to keep spreading. Does a variation or mutation cause it to be more severe? So does this variant have a different disease um, outcome? And, you know, we can find this in laboratory animals, um, but it's very hard to actually prove that in settings um, in a pandemic because there's never a population that just has one, right? Um, but there is some epidemiologic evidence, particularly around B117, that that might be um, slightly more severe than other viruses. And like I said, the transmissibility is clear that it's anywhere between 50 to 75% more transmissible than other viruses. And then of course, concerns about uh, efficacy of vaccines against a variant, um, how will that change over time? Um, are therapies, particularly these monoclonal antibody therapies as effective as those are some of our current frontline treatments? And then lastly, will the tests that we're using be able to detect the variants? Um, the, the quantitative polymerase chain reaction or PCR tests that we're all getting whenever we get the really fun nasal swab is based on the genetic material of the virus. And if that changes enough so that the little detection uh, markers known as primers um, and the probe that's able to detect it change so it doesn't bind as well, then that test won't work well. Um, so that's something that's being monitored at all times as we do the sequencing at both the um, public health lab and the federal lab level. So for instance, this was a change that happened in April, um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, regarding the ability to prescribe certain um, monoclonal antibodies, specifically amlamonavab, um, for treatment of COVID-19 because it was not working well against variants in California. So how do we use the sequencing information and um, being aware of these different variants that are arising to know how a disease is spreading the population? Um, so for instance, uh, as it was reported in Mobility and Mortality Weekly uh, back in February, we were able to detect um, the emergence of the UK variant B117 in Minnesota um, associated with international travel and a history within 14 days of illness. So it really did pinpoint that, you know, this virus was elsewhere. It came into the country as people got sick. Um, and uh, as it shows here, the, that travel was associated with the Dominican Republic, West Africa, and three in California. Um, and then, you know, these are the sorts of reports that come out of that, uh, reminding us to wear a mask, avoid crowds. Um, and just saying that if we aren't traveling, we aren't sharing these variants from one place to another. So um, much like I showed you the flu virus and the different parts, um, and I, I think a lot of you guys have probably been seeing these pictures and hearing about the spike protein, which is, you know, both, it's the immunodominant, immunodominant part of the virus, which is the fancy word to say that's what we mainly make antibodies against, and therefore that's what we've really targeted with both therapies and our vaccines um, to be able to neutralize, so coat that virus with um, antibodies so that it can't get into another cell. Um, but there are, of course, other parts um, in the genome that allow it to make 
the other proteins that are part of the um, virus and uh, basically allow it to replicate and give it the backbone of the structure to, to be the circle that it is. And then just in case you guys are looking and you haven't seen it yet, this is where the spike protein lies within this genome. Um, and this is where we're watching a lot of the variants occur because there is immune pressure against that. So basically the virus is evolving um, away. And that is something that, again, is being watched very closely because um, as we have a larger and larger population that's vaccinated, um, you can get what's called viral escape. Um, so proteins that exist on the surface that are different enough that the vaccine may not work against it as well. So this just shows um, kind of a ribbon structure is what we call it. So it's literally the proteins that are within the spike protein. Um, and this is how it binds to the ACE2 receptor on a human host cell. Um, and mutations that are shown here in yellow are very critical to watch um, because that's where that interaction of the host cell with the spike occur. And that's then what we're seeing in these mutations of interest um, where we have one of the um, protein backbones, which are called amino acids, change. So when it has these letters and then a number and then another letter, that means that we've changed from the amino acid that's known as D um, or asparagine, switching to a glycine um, at the 614th amino acid in the overall sequence of the spike protein. Crazy code, but that's what it means. Um, and this was a, the first mutation that was found in the virus. And basically this mutation um, was advantageous for binding to cells um, and led to basically a takeover of this type of virus in the overall viral population and that's what spread. Um, and then here is another one um, that does seem to allow the virus to get around our antibodies. So the World Health Organization, um, of course, is recommending us to increase our routine sequencing just so that we can watch these changes more closely and really make sure that our vaccines stay useful um, and to know where specifically this is happening so that we can have targeted responses to different um, variants as they occur. Of course, it's critical that we share these sequences, keeping it to ourselves doesn't help anybody, especially as we're trying to fight this globally. Um, and we need to um, try to sequence across the planet as much as possible. Of course, how much we can do this is all based on local infrastructure and ability. Um, but particularly if there's an unusual event, which is you know, talked about here, i.e. if there's transmission in somebody who already is vaccinated or in somebody who um, was using control measures, that's something that we do especially want to know, you know what might be different about this virus to have this happen. So when we don't have lots of ability to sequence, um, maybe in some of our global south locations that are resource poor, um, we're trying to have partnerships with public or academic settings to make sure that we still have representation of viruses from those areas. Um, we're trying to monitor the public health implications of these variants arising. And of course, we can't make recommendations if we don't know what's changing. 
So what has the CDC been doing within the United States? So um, just in January, they started the NS3 program. Um, initially, they were just trying to, uh, so we were not really sequencing much virus at all, whereas the UK was sequencing 10% of the overall cases. Um, and that's how they were able to detect the B117 variant. And I think that was a real wake-up call to most of the planet that we really needed to step up our game in terms of sequencing to really know what was happening. Um, and I'll show in, in a graph, but uh, in terms of words, um, we've now tripled the amount of sequencing that's occurring in the United States per week. Um, and our state hygienic lab of Iowa is also contributing to that. Um, and I should make clear that uh, I've updated these slides, but the original slide set uh, now in these, uh, I guess, last 20 slides did originally come from um, Dr. Mike Pantella, who is the director for the state hygienic lab. Um, and it's a wonderful collaboration and partnership that I very much enjoy in teaching um, and learning from him. So this is the current um, SARS coronavirus 2 surveillance dashboard. I have a URL here if you guys are interested in um, playing with it, I guess with air quotes, um, checking out the data and looking at anything further. But this is the simple, um, just how much are we sequencing? And you can see here in December, we were barely sequencing at all um, in a given week. And then um, after this call to really ramp it up, um, we were hitting more than that 1500 mark most weeks. Um, and then since about February, we really have um, taken it up another notch. And I wanna call out to you, um, the CDC is in the dark blue and they are you know, carrying a decent amount of this burden, but much of this is happening at state hygienic labs or public health labs shown in light blue. Um, and that's including the lab that's out here in Coralville. So we really do appreciate um, the burden and the work that's being done by our public health professionals at all of these locations. And of course, um, now in April, we've ramped this up another notch and basically doubled um, from what we were doing previous to really try to track um, as we roll out vaccination, if there is any change happening in the efficacy and the virus because of that. So the ones that are currently being tracked on a public health level, um, not surprisingly, is B117, um, the UK variant that I've mentioned as the first one that was really detected and um, was the, the wake-up call to do more sequencing. Um, shortly thereafter, we identified these two next variants, the South African variant, um, B1351. Um, it has multiple um, mutations in the spike protein, but there isn't evidence yet that necessarily there's more severe disease. The big challenge with that one is that um, it appeared that the AstraZeneca vaccine did not work against it as well um, because they had a trial ongoing in South Africa at that time. So that led the South African government to say that they didn't want to use the AstraZeneca vaccine moving forward and um, has led to some shifts in what was needed, um, particularly with the, the um, Covance effort to put vaccine into um, all parts of the planet and needing to make sure that we have vaccines that work that are available to those efforts for global vaccine availability. And then lastly, um, the variant that's been identified in India, B1617, some people have called this the double mutation. Um, of course, that's kind of a silly name because these viruses have you know, over a dozen mutations. 
um, but it importantly has two mutations that have been shown in the spike protein that can increase the fitness of those viruses. Um, so that's where that language comes from. Um, and a bunch of them are in the spike protein, um, but because of you know the state of data where it is right now, there's anecdotal reports that people think that that's why it's um, the virus and the disease is spreading so widely in India right now. Um, but there are other variants there as well. So we, we are waiting um, definitive data to tell us how much this new variant might be adding to the um, new wave of disease that has happened in India over the last month and um, identify whether this virus actually is more transmissible. So this is just a chart of all the different variants in the United States right now. And I'll draw your attention to the right-hand side of this where we've got our nice little color coding. Um, so specifically, um, B117, as you'll see, went from barely existing in the United States in January to being the predominant virus now. Um, over 47% of the cases that are found in the United States now are because of B117 UK variant virus. Um, but, you know, so that is um, shifting away from kind of the first viruses, which are, you know, the B12. Um, and we are seeing um, these other viruses are being outcompeted, which is just kind of everything else. Um, it will be interesting to watch. You know, so down here in this kind of dark red is the Brazil virus, um, known as P1, and the outbreak that occurred in Manaus, Brazil, um, was often in people who had previously been infected with some of these, you know, B12 viruses, and they were able to get sick again, um, indicating that the antibodies that they formed do not protect against that P1 virus. And that's something that we really want to watch because if previous um, disease, particularly globally, isn't going to protect against these new variants, it is even that much more critical that we provide vaccination that allows a more robust um, and broad spectrum antibody group to be formed within each individual's body that seems to then protect better against the virus. And to date, what they're saying in both India and Brazil is that vaccines are still working against their relative um, B1617 and um, P1 viruses, but this is what we're really watching for. So this is just showing it in another way um, with pie charts, um, which you know many epidemiologists cringe at, but it is a quick way to be able to look at what are different viruses in different parts of the country. So again, this kind of light um, orange one is B117 um, and is predominating across much of the country. California did come out with a couple of its own variants that are shown here in these other colors of orange. Um, and in the Northeast and actually in um, the region that's just to the North and East of Iowa, um, you can kind of see this dark orange one, which I said is the P1 virus. So that's one of the ones that I'm keeping my eye on. Um, and then just another example of how we can use this um, variant information to track how something spreads within the population. Um, I think many of you heard public health professionals crying out uh, warnings as the Sturgis uh, motorcycle rally occurred last August. 
and they were able to watch the virus come into town on those motorcycles um, and spread throughout the population, both in town and people throughout the country, and then watch it spread back out to Minnesota um, and other locations around the United States. Um, and this is just another map of data coming out of the State Hygienic Lab that talks about specific viruses and the ones um, from Iowa are here in blue that have added to the overall huge amount of genomes um, that we've seen sequenced from the novel coronavirus. So I'm gonna talk just on a slide or two about um, vaccine breakthrough. So vaccine breakthrough is when you get sick after you've received two known or one, if that's the regimen, um, vaccination, um, and you've had the two weeks and then you get sick. Um, and this is normal, um, vaccine breakthroughs do happen. Um, but what we'll want to do is we'll want to see if this is due to viral mutations or variants, or is this due to known um, personal immunocompromise? So for instance, people that can't form B cells as well because they um, are on dialysis for renal failure, or they are cancer patients that are on specific antibody inhibiting um, chemotherapies or immunotherapies. Um, these cases are all reported to um, state public health. So for us, the Iowa Department of Public Health or IDPH. Um, and we want to then characterize what's happening both in those people and those viruses to watch. And um, people around the country and around the planet are doing that right now. So will the current vaccines protect against infection with variant strain? So, you know, of the ones we have so far, um, they do. Um, as I mentioned, the South Africa strain in their data when they were doing their trial, it did come out that perhaps AstraZeneca did not work as well. Um, but studies are really ongoing, particularly most recently with the India strain, um, B1617, to see what uh, vaccines work against it. They are producing the AstraZeneca vaccine in India. Um, so that is one of the ones that we will see. Um, they aren't having as much either of Pfizer or Moderna. So we will need to wait um, to see data come out from other sources to really know how well that one works. And this just shows down to the molecular level um, of B117. This is um, the South African variant and P1, the Brazilian variant. Um, where those changes are happening in the genome, in the spike protein, um, and how we're watching that to see what happens with antibodies. So can they be stopped? Yeah, um, unfortunately it's doing these things that we're getting really tired of doing, but um, the best way to prevent these variants from spreading through populations is through the stuff we've been doing for the last year, which is social distancing, not, um, touching your face, washing your hands, and then wearing your mask. Um, and that's even if you are vaccinated, because um, if you're in a setting with a lot of people, you're still at risk of catching these new variants that the vaccine may not work against. So that's why um, we're trying to smile and you know, encourage that even with vaccination, um, it isn't a silver bullet. And if we have better behavior, much like we did with that flu data, um, we really can keep the amount of virus that's able to mutate, spread, and maybe form viruses that are gonna fight um, against that vaccine and win 
um, out of circulation. And this is just a great crowd that I um, was having a friend entertain as I was performing some studies in India two years ago when I could travel. But I'm willing to take any questions. Dr. Peterson, thank you so much. That incredibly power-packed presentation with so much information. My head is sort of reeling with all of this. So we're going to move on now to the Q&A portion of our program. Please submit your questions via the chat function. You can access the chat function by clicking on the chat box icon, which will be located near your audio and video buttons. And while I'm waiting for questions to come in, I want to mention that we have two upcoming, our final two seminars of the spring semester. One's on May 4th with um, experts from the Chicago Council on Global Affairs are going to be talking about American foreign policy, opinion, and attitudes. And then on May 13th, we're having a foreign service officer who served in Afghanistan. We're talking about Afghanistan. Um, we'll be sending out more information about this. And we're also very grateful to all of you for making our online programs free and open to the public. Um, we're very grateful to all of you who support our programs. So if you can make a donation to support them, we would appreciate that. You can go online at www.icfr. ICFC, I can't even say it, ICFRC.com. This is not great. Org, www.icfrc.org. Okay, having a senior moment here. Um, we're now going to transition into the question and answer period, and let's see if we've got some questions coming in for Dr. Peterson. Yeah, there's several. Good. Good. So, to what extent was the increase in federal sequencing earlier this year a response to the change in administration? In general, how important is the federal government in efforts to fight this? Yeah, well, as you might imagine, um, because the federal budget is what gives the funds to the CDC to do efforts like sequence um, 15,000 viruses a week, um, that does matter um, in terms of who is running uh, our federal government and how those funds are allocated. Um, they were doing some low-level sequencing just because we know from flu and other viruses that that's critical, but the upramping uh, and increase um, was a direct effort from the government. Sorry. One of our participants wants to know, are we going to be able to, are we getting a flu vaccine combined with a COVID vaccine this fall? Yeah, so there is data coming from um, at least one company about a combined um, flu COVID vaccine. Um, they are starting trials right now so that they could potentially have it rolled out for the fall to have a combined vaccine. But you think we'll probably be needing to get boosters every so often. I will. Um, and it's because of what we've seen from this virus and the variants. Um, it will probably change enough over time that we will need to get a different vaccine um, with some regularity and yearly might be that regular. Okay, thank you. So is there any indication that variants cause different symptoms? Yeah, so the challenge is that um, symptom reporting is obviously um, based on individuals and uh, what they report and then the ability to sequence and then combine that data um, is not the most precise of science. Um, to date, we do know that there were certainly 
pretty broad differences between the first SARS coronavirus and the one that is the pandemic, um, particularly the changes in the amount of gastrointestinal disease that we saw. So it is possible that eventually we will have slightly different symptoms, um, but we just don't have the data to really talk about it. Okay, thank you. Another um, participant wants to know, can you comment on COVID-19 in Africa and different areas within this large continent? Yeah, so um, one of the jobs I have, which is a joy, is I'm the scientific program um, chair for the American Society of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene. So through that, um, I've had the privilege of looking at the symposia that are already being posted for our annual conference. Um, and what I know is that um, in Africa, because of the way they approach the virus, but probably also just due to um, some pretty dramatic shifts in travel um, and the testing they were doing and a more um, outside life and a younger population, um, and we don't know exactly how each of those contributed to it, they really have not seen much SARS coronavirus 2 um, transmission yet. Of course, several of those things are why India was basically bragging that they hadn't had any problems and we've watched them unfortunately um, become a real hot spot. So, so far, Africa has done fairly well um, and we're hoping that it will continue that way. So given you, you spent your whole career working towards this, what do you worry most about now? What keeps you up at night? Yeah, um, honestly, what makes me most frustrated right now is people who, um, for one reason or another, are choosing not to get the vaccine. Um, it, it's just such an astonishing accomplishment that we actually have it almost a year later. Uh, and in locations where there's gonna be low vaccine uptake, those are gonna be the communities that are gonna have outbreaks and that's where we're gonna get potentially deadly variants coming out. So um, that's what I'm watching. Um, are we gonna get kind of microcosm pop-up outbreaks in the United States? Um, and then trying to remind myself, um, you know, because as you guess, my last name is Peterson. I have many relatives across the Midwest, how to have loving, constructive conversations about that with friends and family. I think that's a challenge for all of us in, inside our families and in our neighborhoods, right? Yeah. We have another question here. How come New Zealand has so few cases? So New Zealand has a very um, proactive government and they shut their borders of their country. Um, they instituted a mask mandate and um, very rapidly saw their cases stay very low. Um, it, it is a benefit that they're an island, um, which makes closing borders more straightforward, um, but their proactive government had a big role to do as well. Yeah, it's been amazing. I have friends there and it, it, they shut down so quickly, took control so fast. Yeah. Another question here, using the known 3D structure of the spike protein and various antibodies, is it possible to predict mutations that will escape immune reactions? Yeah, so that sort of modeling work is being done and predictions. Um, of course, we can, we can make 
statistical predictions based on the way the structure works, but um, until it happens, it hasn't happened because the actual mutation process is stochastic. Um, so that's why we need a combination of that really nice high level um, protein structure science on top of the epidemiology of seeing what viruses are out there. I'm trying to see if there are any more questions here. So has this brought more students to study epidemiology? Um, we are having bumper crop of applications to the <laughs> epic department, I can say that. And uh, I've, I normally have a group of about 10. Right now I've got 16 and I usually get about an email a week of some wonderful, bright person who just really is interested in what's happening. <laughs> You might say a plug for the program because you guys do an amazing job at the College of Public Health and in the Department of Epidemiology. Thank you so much, Catherine. Yeah, no. So it's been our great pleasure. Um, we're getting lots of thank yous now, lots of clapping online. Um, I think this will conclude our program. And we want to give a big thank you to, to Dr. Christine Peterson today for this very informative, wonderful presentation and for sharing her expertise with us. And Dr. Peterson, we're going to be sending you um, this highly coveted. Iowa City Formulations Council mug. <laughs> um, I understand it is highly coveted. It's one of the things I've learned in my first two weeks on the job here. Um, we we want to thank you so much for joining us today. We want to thank also all of our participants today for joining us. Um, and we see all the clapping now on, online. So thank you so much. If any of you still have other questions, she said you can reach out to her. And if you need your, her email address, you can find her on the College of Public Health website or you can contact us. But thank you all so much. Take good care. We'll see you next Tuesday. Thank you.